in Bitcoin, nobody is going to save you. There's no one to call. There's no central bank to help you out to print some more Bitcoin. There's no guy that's going to reset your password. You lose this stuff or it goes to zero and you're fucked. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Hey there, folks. We appreciate you strapping in for another episode of the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. During this lengthier discussion, Josh and myself, Dan, unpack the current monetary system, the fiat system, how it came to be, how it functions, why that matters, and what Bitcoin does to fix it. This episode starts with two brief monologues from both myself and Josh. Enjoy. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. So last episode, we finished, Josh, talking about how and why money was selected by Homo sapien. Basically got into some deep history, had some fun discussion, you had some great examples. And we landed on the idea that money is a tool our species created to better cooperate, is one summary of where we landed. And I think it's important to realize money is so old, most of us take it completely for granted and fail to think through how or why certain monies emerged. I know I'm, I completely overlooked this. Like As I started getting into Bitcoin and study monetary history a little bit, this is something that really stood out to me is digging into for what reason do monies emerge. And obviously, good monies have certain characteristics and properties that make them selectable by human beings to transfer value over space and time. That's one of the definitions we gave of money was it's a tool that we use to transfer value across space and time. So I think there's five characteristics that best encapsulate the properties of money and the reasons why it's been selected on the free market. These are the same five characteristics I heard Robert Breedlove cite on an episode with Preston Pish, the Investors Podcast. He did a really good job going through these five. I'm going to include some of what he said and some of my own stuff. The five characteristics I'm going to run through quickly and provide some definitions for are these. Durability, portability, recognizability, divisibility, and scarcity. All right. So to start with durability, property of money is that it must persist over time. A good has to be something that cannot be easily destroyed. So for example, bananas can't store or transfer value because they rot. They're not durable. Second, portability. Money must be movable across space. So goods have to be easy to store. They have to be easy to transfer. They have to be easy to trade. So an example here of a, a good that's poor at portability is, say, livestock. It's not portable. can't be moved very easily. Third, recognizability. A money has to be easy to identify. You have to be able to deem it as authentic. Someone has to be able to decipher that it's not being counterfeited. Fourth characteristic is divisibility. It's got monies and stores of value need to be easily subdividable into small units such that we can transact at different scales, essentially. Fifth is scarcity. 
Another word for this would be hardness or soundness of money. And I think history shows us very clearly that, that scarcity is the most important characteristic or property of money. Essentially, scarcity is the idea that something is resistant to supply inflation. So every actor or every participant in a money network obviously has an incentive or reason to produce more money, right? Everybody wants more money. So if you can make more of it, you're going to do that. So if this is easy to do, if it's easy to create or inflate money, money becomes worthless. There has to be a finite supply for something to be valuable, to store and transfer value. I like this quote by Nick Zabo. He says, money must have unforgeable costliness. So these are the five characteristics. And there's there's more. I think most of the other properties, though, can be fit under one of these five. Durability, portability, recognizability, divisibility, and scarcity. And in this episode, I'm sure, and in many episodes to come, we're going to talk repeatedly about these characteristics and properties and how they pertain to different types of money, gold, Bitcoin, fiat, you name it. But historically, it's, it's important to realize that the free market is as honed in, as I said, on tools that best satisfy these characteristics. And it's quite clear through history that gold has emerged as the best store of value asset our species has ever had, right? Gold's existed for five to 10,000 years. It's still just as valuable today as it was 6,000 years ago, selected on the free market over time. And I, I think the reason it was selected is because of its durability and its profound scarcity. Gold has the highest stock to flow model of any commodity out there. In other words, it has very low and predictable supply inflation Another way to say this is it's it's super difficult to extract from the earth and it's extracted from the earth at fairly repeatable, consistent intervals. So for that reason, it has been the hallmark of scarcity for our species. And then secondly, it's incredibly durable. It doesn't corrode. It lasts forever. I think it's said that almost all the gold that's ever been mined is still extant, meaning it, it still exists. So gold is the best money we've ever had, but... In the last, I don't know, three to five centuries, as economies have grown in size, as markets have become significantly more global, and one could say as money velocity has increased, gold's shortcomings, its weaknesses, have proven to be far more obvious and cumbersome. So gold lacks in three main areas that I mentioned. It lacks in divisibility, recognizability, and portability. So with divisibility, you can only subdivide gold to a certain point, right? If you were buying coffee with gold, you'd be transacting in gold dust, for example. I, I heard Breedlove say that. It also lacks in recognizability in the sense that when you're moving gold between two parties, you need someone to assay its value, to weigh it. And if you don't have that happening, then you need to trust a third party to say coin it, right? Like a government. So recognizability is a, is a flaw. And then third, portability Quite simply, metals are super heavy. They're obvious and expensive to move. So to tie this all together, what I'm saying is that history shows us gold is the best and some may say the fairest money our species has ever had. But eventually, growing markets necessitated expansion and change in monetary technologies, in monetary tools. And that's what ushered in the idea and the concept of gold-backed currencies, such as banknotes, cash, and then eventually leading up to our fiat system, placing us on the road to where we are today. And here's the quick spoiler in case the audience wants to get 
super horny for Bitcoin. Bitcoin harnesses and I would say improves on gold's strengths. So it's strengths of durability and scarcity. While at the same time, rectifying, and I would argue perfecting, gold's shortcomings of divisibility, recognizability, and portability. And that is why I, along with many other individuals, would argue fundamentally Bitcoin is the best money our species has ever had. What say you, Josh? Beautifully done. What a succinct wrap up of our just talk about what the characteristics of money are. I, I chose that monologue to kick this off just because these are you know words we're going to be using a lot, have used a lot. And I can remember a time and place where I benefited from having somebody run through what they are, what they mean, and how they apply. And obviously, we'll be doing a lot more of that. Yeah, I think that you wrapped it up real nice in a bow for everybody to understand exactly why and how Bitcoin you know, has the real meaning that we believe it does in this world. And I think what you said at the end there, how it embodies all of the best characteristics of gold, improves them, and then on top of that, takes the characteristics of fiat that improved gold and doubles down to improve those as well. That is that is just really the thing that just, you know, blows your mind when you really when you really dig into this and think about it. It's pretty it's a scary. It's a scary thought. Like it the going back to, you know, we talked last episode about first principles, going back to first principles. When somebody asks me, you know, why should I be interested in Bitcoin? Why is it not a giant joke? This is an answer I've given before, essentially kind of what I just went through. And I think it's a good place to start. It it doesn't mean that slam dunk Bitcoin's going to take over the world, but it does wrap up the properties of money that have been selected over thousands of years in a way that no asset has ever done before. And for that reason, you best pay attention to it. Yeah. And the asymmetric side of this bet is the thing that people need to understand most. Um, understanding these first principles that we enumerate here, compounding with the you know the digital world we're moving into, with the first scarce digital asset having all the characteristics we just enumerated, the you know the upside on this thing is still incredible. Even at forty eight thousand or whatever it's trading at the moment, it's still got massive room to move up, and you need to get some exposure to it at least at least a little bit. You know, start playing with it, start understanding it. Can you do me a favor and define asymmetry in case somebody's not familiar with what that means? Asymmetry, simply broken down in my mind, is kind of like a probabilistic look at something where your small bet placed could have a 10x upside and only downside would be the bet that you placed on the table. So a lot of uh, VCs do this with their portfolios. They'll make, say, 100 small bets in small companies, fully expecting and knowing that 90% of them are going to fail. But as long as those remaining 10% do 10x, they're going to come out ahead in the, in the long run. And that's really kind of the probabilistic way you need to approach this. It's This is a small portion of your portfolio, unless you just want to level in and you know take some chances. But even a small portion of your portfolio with an asset like this you know, this can, this thing in 10 years with 1% of your portfolio could be 80% of your portfolio, theoretically. Very possible. It already is for a lot of people. So Dan, having taken a look at the characteristics of money that you just laid out there, 
I'm going to take us into the fiat system and talk about what is wrong with the current system we're operating in, at least from our view. Try to understand why it works the way it does, how it works the way it does, and kind of lay it all out. So what is fiat and how did we get here? Our current fiat system is from from gold to Bretton Woods to the petrodollar. In the last hundred years or so, those are the three waypoints we've hit in this fiat system. So before 1933, all paper currency in the U.S. was backed by gold. At least some percentage of it was. In 1933, during the Great Depression, you know it was a crazy time and crazy measures were hap- were uh, enabled. One of these measures was Executive Order 6102, which made possessing gold illegal in the United States for common people. FDR took possession of all gold, paid people $20 an ounce for their gold. So they didn't just steal your gold. They paid you $20 per ounce for the gold. Later that year, after they had collected all this gold from everybody, they repriced it to $35 per ounce. So what that is right there is a good old-fashioned haircut. They've done this in a lot of places over time, but it's literally reprice the material that we took from you. And right there, we just, you know, you just got leveled. You just lost 30, 40% of your, of your uh, value of the investment that you had instantly. So after we had that haircut in the 30s, leading up to World War II, we had the Bretton Woods Agreement. And this happened in 1944, right before the end of the war, when it was fairly clear that the Allies were going to win the war. They met, when I say they, I mean the Allies in World War II, met in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, to decide on the new monetary system after the war. And this is a pretty normal happenstance after these kinds of giant wars. After World War I, there was the Treaty of Versailles. This was something similar to that to kind of enumerate how everything, how the world was going to be operating after the war. So it was decided at the Bretton Woods meeting that all countries in the world We're going to maintain a fixed exchange rate between their currencies and the dollar. The dollar would remain backed by gold. So in theory, the entire world system is still backed by gold through dollars. So dollars are backed by gold. Other currencies are are pegged to the dollar. And so in a roundabout way, everything is still on a gold standard. So the world went from 1944 until 1971. In 1971, the Bretton Woods gold standard effectively ended temporarily. Nixon went on TV and he said that we're going to end the gold window temporarily. Situation was that France wanted their repayment in gold because they called our bluff and said, I don't think you actually have the gold to back what you're uh, you're saying the dollar's worth. So we're going to call you on it and we want our gold back. And so the United States responded by saying, nope, we're taking this off the gold, the uh, gold standard. So after that, in uh, the seventies, in order to kind of remain stable, Kissinger and Nixon had a great idea, which really did save this entire thing, in my opinion. They uh, they came to what was called the what is still called the petrodollar, and this is an agreement with Saudi Arabia between Saudi Arabia and the United States that ensured all oil in the world would be priced in U.S. dollars. This way, the world's important resources could be the world's most important resource could only be obtained using dollars, and so in this way. Dollars were still the most important thing to have because if you wanted energy, if you wanted oil, you needed to have dollars. So this solidified the dollar in the world for a long period of time after this, up till today. This is kind of how we've gone from a gold standard to a semi-gold standard 
to a fiat standard in the last hundred years. And governments have been debasing money since they've had any control of it. The Romans did it. The Germans did it in uh, the 20s. In Zimbabwe, they've done it maybe two or three times in the last 30 years. Venezuela is doing it again as we speak. Debasing money allows them to hide deficit spending. That is the key to the reasoning behind all of this. The basing money gives them complete control of the economy. It gives them interest rate manipulation. It gives them yield curve control. It allows them to monetize debt. And central banks realistically have one lever that they can pull, and that is printing money and buying assets. They can call it anything they want, but in the end, when the rubber hits the road on this thing, it's printing money and buying assets and manipulating the market with the printed money. So when it gets messy is when they want to claw that money back. When they start thinking that they're losing control of the situation, they start raising interest rates like they did in the 80s to kind of control inflation. And that's what causes messy deleveraging. A deleveraging is when basically companies go bankrupt. The whole market crashes because everybody, the music stops. Everyone's kind of caught naked when the tide pulls out and they can't refinance their debt and afford the new interest rates. So it causes a huge bust. So these interest rate manipulations over time cause this boom bust cycle every 10 years or so. And then every, according to Ray Dalio, and if you follow it through history, it's pretty accurate. Every 80 to 100 years ago, we have a huge debt cycle. And that's generally when everything is so indebted, so entrenched, so mired in debt that there has to be a pretty major event. It could be a currency failure. It might be just an entire new world order where everything is kind of flipped over. And there's another Bretton Woods. Bretton Woods was kind of one of those situations. So there's a couple of different ways that this is approached. There could be a a debt jubilee, which is forgiving all debt from everybody. Wipe the slate clean, start over, see, you know, everyone's at zero, starts on over. Very unlikely, very rare as well. There's austerity, and austerity is uh, basically cutting funding in every government entity. Welfare stops. We're talking about massive cuts to uh, the military. And then we're talking about pitchforks in the streets and people you know, pulling out the guillotines for politicians. And politicians obviously don't want that to happen. So that's very low probability. Then we have a good old-fashioned default, which is just being honest and saying, look, we don't have the money and we, we're not going to print it. We're just going bankrupt. That's probably the rarest form, but and also the most honest. So, I mean, I think we all know politicians aren't going to pull that trick. And then here's the most common one. This is an inflationary intervention to afford debt, which means they're simply going to print the money and they're going to buy the debt in a circle until, until either everything's better or they blow up the currency. I hate to tell you folks, but it never really gets better. It's usually just people getting poorer because... They don't realize or understand what's going on as they watch everything and all these asset prices increase. They think they're getting rich, but in real terms, in nominal terms, they're actually losing money while they think they get rich. The primary reason all this stuff happens, it's just human nature. It's kind of like we talked about game theory, and Dan touched on it a little bit earlier. You give any human being enough power to control the money, to control the printer, and they are going to take full advantage of it. So what we really need here is to take the power out of the hands of people totally. Give it to a system, give it to an algorithm. You know, we're we're doing this with so many different technologies right now. We're working on cars that drive themselves. 
We've got Google algorithms that help you figure out what it is you're looking for. We're, we're taking the, the controls out of people's hands in every aspect of the world. Why in the world would we keep the hands of people on the, the technology that it could be the most disruptive to all of us if abused, which is the money? So how does inflation affect an everyday man? Inflation slowly eats your savings. It devalues your earnings. And it's a hidden tax that you don't even realize you pay. And we're all watching this thing happen right now. And if it doesn't scare the shit out of you, it should. And you should be looking for any way to protect yourself. And as Dan and I have pointed out here, I don't know how many times in the last couple episodes, but we think one of the best ways to protect yourself through this situation is to have yourself some Bitcoin and sit on it for the long term. Thank you for that, Josh. Really enjoyed the way you uh, brought us through that. And I think that context is super important because we, so many of us just have no clue. We're born into a system and we have no understanding of how it originated. And uh, you laid out that history very well. Took some notes while you were talking. Um, one thing I really liked, you said this towards the end, was most things in our world today, as the world becomes increasingly digital, we trust algorithms with. And why on God's green earth are we trusting the component of the world and the economy that's most prone to manipulation? Why are we, why are we entrusting that control to human beings when it can be entrusted to algorithms? Like that was a great, that was a great point. And I think the easy answer to that is this is the way we've always done it, which is a lot of ways humans, you know, work. And then there's also the component of the guy in charge does not want to relinquish control over that thing. Like that is a gold mine, quite literally. You know, you're you're not going to just say, you know what, here, you can take this gift that I've been keeping here that is worth the world and uh take it away from me. No way. Like every anyone with any sense is gonna hold that power for as long as they can. The other thing that I'm thinking about with this is is power is difficult to relinquish because changing how it's working will create short-term pain. Like, don't be mistaken, coming off of this messed up system that we're currently using right now, off this fiat system, like it's there's gonna be some serious growing pains. Like even if you even if you have a really shitty home it's easier just to try to fix it up than tear it completely down and rebuild it. But at some point, the house is so shitty, you just need to raise the thing to the ground. And uh, so yeah, part of the reason manipulation is convenient is because it it alleviates and pushes into the future the, the pain and adjustments that really do need to occur in the economy. What I'm hoping happens here, and I'm, I'm very optimistic about this, as we're kind of seeing these two I, you, like you brought it, you said houses. We're in kind of this rotting fiat house right now that's falling apart. It's destitute. Everyone knows there's a problem, but no one wants to say anything because they're afraid of the exit getting crushed. But at the same time, there's this other house getting built next door. And they're kind of building the two houses together in a way. Almost like, have you ever heard of the ship of Theseus? It's an old anecdote from, I think it originates in like with like Plato or something where he talks about a ship with wooden planks and every time a plank rots it's replaced with a new one well eventually with every plank in that ship getting replaced mm. it's a brand new ship eventually 
That's kind of the way that I see this transition happening. At least that's the way I'm optimistically thinking about it because yeah. hopefully as these planks rot, we can replace each previous plank with a brand new useful plank that is going to put some real sturdy foundation under this whole thing seamlessly. Let's hope. Yeah, I think there is a future where Bitcoin could be the most pain-free solution to coming off the fiat system. You agree? I do. I mean, it's not going to be an easy transition, but yeah, fair is a good, it's going to be the fairest transition. But, you know, Jeff Booth, I've heard him talk some about, you know, he, he wants what's best for mankind. And I agree. That's in my heart as well. Like, I don't wish ill on other human beings. I want people to be prosperous. I want our species to be more prosperous as a whole. That's part of the reason I'm interested in Bitcoin. Yeah, I think there is a way for Bitcoin to happen slowly and gradually and and to eventually be totally entrenched in such a way that it it uh, alleviates or mitigates some of that abrupt separation that could create some serious disaster. That like you said, that's the glass half full perspective. Yeah. Yeah, let's um, let's I'd like to run with that one because that's the one that gives me the most optimism for the future. And even if it doesn't turn out to be quite so optimistic, at least in the long term, I think that everything is probably going to be just fine. But human beings, like everything in nature, are cyclical. And we have this cycle that you can watch through history over and over. And it kind of coincides with that 80-year debt cycle we talked about, which is every 20 years, there's a new generation of people that kind of take from their parents and, and change things in their own way. And the best way to understand this this is an idea from a book called The Fourth Turning, is that there's generally a shocking, horrible, or just jarring experience that one generation has. And they learn a lot of things about themselves and about the world from that. And they teach those lessons to their kids 20 years later. And then those kids, you know, teach the next generation. And after about four generations, most of those lessons about history are lost. And we tend to repeat the same mistakes with a a rhyming sequence every 80 to 100 years. And in my mind, that's kind of what's going on here. We're hopefully not going to repeat with a giant war like World War II. But there is that worry in my mind. Uh, At the same time, we could also have a great revolutionary experience, almost like a, a reformation or similar like what happened in the 1600s with an explosion of new ideas and art and, mm. and beauty in the world uh, is the way I hope that this actually takes place. But I think we're in one of those generational turnings where things are going to change dramatically, maybe for the worse in the short term, but I think for the better in the long term. Yeah. One thing I wanted to qualify about my previous statement, I was saying you know, Bitcoin could be the most pain-free solution to the problem we have. That may not make sense to a lot of people that feel like the current system is working. But I think Josh and I would agree, don't be mistaken, pain is coming. There's going to be problems with the, the road we're on. Like the track that the train is on, it's a runaway track to a bad outcome if some change isn't introduced. And to just high, you know explain why that is briefly... The global economy is way, way, way over leveraged. And by over leveraged, I'm saying there's more debt in the world today than there's ever been in human history. There's massive amounts of money manipulation. There's tons of money insertion that's been going on 
for a long time now. What all these things add up to, the way I would summarize them is the economy, the system we have is sticks and bubblegum, and it's incredibly fragile. Another way to view it is dominoes. And when a couple dominoes fall, the whole thing can collapse. And we saw the beginning of that in 2007, 2008 with the Great Recession. The shame of the Great Recession is that we added more sticks and more bubblegum to an already fragile system. The point here is like at some point in our lifetimes, I think in our lifetimes is a fair way to put it. Josh and I are in our 30s. At some point in our lifetimes, if a solution isn't presented, there's going to be massive economic pain. Yeah. One way that I I just came up with this, it's kind of like a bad marriage. There's, there's separation, there's angst in the marriage, and they both know it's probably better to just end it, but they're not going to because they neither one of them has the courage to actually make that move and, and actually make it happen. So they're just going to kick this can down the road. They're going to let the animosity grow. And 10 years later, it's even worse, but we're just going to, you know, we're going to tie it up and pretend everything's fine. And then we're going to just kick this can again. And everybody knows where eventually that is going to end. It's going to blow up. It's going to be a worse situation because you just didn't address it back when it could have been solved with less pain because there was less, there was less put into it in order for it to uh, snowball even worse. So, I mean, that's kind of a, a little anecdote that I just came up with comparing that to uh, a shitty marriage. Shitty marriage, which obviously neither of us have. No. We love our wives more than anything in the world. Shout out to our we wives. Do. Shout out Those Kelly and Polly. Beautiful women. Best decision I ever made was marrying my wife. Dead serious. That's exactly what somebody in a shitty marriage would say, Dan. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> if you had a podcast and you had a shitty marriage, that's what you would say. But no, seriously, here's here's my decisions ranked in order. Best decision I ever made, marrying my wife. Second best decision I ever made, conceiving my daughter. Third best decision I ever made, buying Bitcoin. Man, you really like rank that kind of low. I'm I'm a little worried about your uh, <laughs> your uh, loyal, well, how loyal you are to the, to the Kraken. B? Yeah, is really, what I'm worried about. To get back to the what well, we've been on it, but to to really get back to the intention of this episode and talk some serious shit about fiat, and this this parlays on some of your monologue as well. For people that aren't aware of how the current system operates, I think central banking is a good area to start. Central banking is a fucking insane idea. We're in a country where value free markets and capitalism, or we claim to value free markets and capitalism above all else. And yet at the very heart, at the very core of our economic system is an inherently socialist structure. That being central banking. The government has its hands on the two most important levers of the money market. And remember, like the market for money is on one side of every single transaction in the world. Any good or service you buy on the other side is money. And there's a market for money. If you're not familiar with econ or you've never taken a macroecon class, like I think money markets is a good good lesson to go through. But they have their hands on the supply in the money market and the price in the money market being interest rates. That's such an interesting theme to think about. At the core of today's capitalistic structures 
is an inherently socialistic, monopolized institution. I want to throw something in on the monopoly idea. I remember it must have been in high school and you're going through an econ class. Maybe it was college. I don't remember, but they're talking about cartels and on the same page, they talk about central banking as if those are different things. What we're looking at here is literally a cartel that price fixes. By definition, that's what central banking is. That's what they are. Technically, the Fed is a compilation of different banks, but they're all under the same header. They're effectively a cartel that manipulates the price of money. And we look at OPEC and we say, this is a bad thing that we have a cartel that can fix the price of oil. This is terrible. While at the same time, we have the central bank called the Fed that we just everybody worships and listens to everything they have say with bated breath to see what's going to happen in the market because they literally control this thing. It's it's wild. Yeah, we we a lot of a lot of uh, people in finance are more concerned with like one Fed announcement than they are like paying attention to fundamentals and cash flows of companies. It's it's such a distorted system. People pick apart their you know the the chairman of the Fed every word he says and move markets on what they say, you know? It's it's crazy. It really is. Like what should be moving markets is what's actually going on in markets. Like who's making money, who's losing money. You know, what's uh, Facebook doing to monetize their social network? Not what some clown at a central bank has got to say about his view of the of the economy, but and which has been proven wrong time and time again. Ben Bernanke back in 2007 said the sub subprime crisis is contained. And then it blew up. <laughs> and these guys are the the history of this bank is rife with not only the wrong ideas but the polar opposite of the right ones they've they've missed the mark every single time i think what's interesting to talk about when we get into central banking there's this whole thing going on in the year 2021 regarding bitcoin and patriotism i'm sure you've seen a lot of this josh like is bitcoin American or anti-American. And there's a lot of people that are calling it anti-American because it what we're doing in this episode is we're talking some shit about the core of the US government, which really is the Fed. We, yeah, I think you said the other week, the most powerful position in this country is not president of the United States. It's Jerome Powell and the Fed chairman. That's the most powerful position in, in America. This discussion interests me so much because I view Bitcoin as fundamentally American. And I think to to enumerate this point, the founding fathers, most of the founding fathers would detest the way central banking is operating today. Like for example, while you were talking most of them never wanted it to happen. No, at all. They hell were, no. It was like one of the foundations of the found like a lot of here's Thomas Jefferson. I be, this is a quote I just looked up. I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. Thomas Jefferson yeah. was vehemently opposed to central banking. And central banking hasn't been around for very long. It's only been an established longstanding institution since 1913. So it's a fairly new mm-hmm. phenomenon in the history of our country. And here's, here's where I want to go to get back to the, the patriotism thing. This country was founded on freedom and capitalism. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. All of the individuals that established this great country we're interested in maximizing individual freedom and one could say individual sovereignty. And what what the central bank does back to the socialism at the heart of capitalism, it's 
diametrically opposed to that vision. And I, I can pretty much assure you that if they looked at the way money is being handled in the United States today in the 21st century, like they would throw up in their mouth. You agree? I very much agree. So it's more American than anything out there. The idea of a decentralized money protocol is fundamentally American. Ever heard of Meyer Rothschild was a huge bank. Uh, I can't remember the, I think he ran the Bank of England back in a, a couple hundred years ago. One of the quotes that, that brings me back to him when you said that was he, he would say, I don't care who makes the laws as long as I get to control the money. And that statement right there tells you everything you need to know about wh- how, where the power lies and everything. It's fundamentally who controls the strings and that's who controls the money because politicians are bought and sold all the way to the top and everybody knows that. Nobody, it's an uncomfortable truth that we all live under without wanting to look at it. But whoever does control that money controls everything. And that's why this is such a fundamentally important thing to understand and why Bitcoin is such a huge game changer in the world. I mean, its contributions to computer science are great, but what this thing fundamentally is, is at a philosophical level, it's freeing everybody from a guy like Mayor Rothschild deciding that he's going to control you with money. That is technological revolution here that we think is going to be world changing because nobody is going to have that power. Nobody's going to control politicians with money by controlling the supply of it. The importance of that can't be imparted enough. Yeah, it can't be overstated. I, I think I've said before, when you study money, where it's been, where it's going, what these new technologies and tools like Bitcoin enable, the ideas that they plant, it seems incredibly clear to me that money will eventually be something that can't be manipulated and that's algorithmic. And in order to accomplish that, it seems quite obvious it's going to need to be decentralized open source protocol, you know, very similar to the internet itself. Now, one could argue, so I think it's it's very likely that's where money's going, just based on game theory and market incentives and the problems that currently exist. Now, maybe that's not Bitcoin. Like maybe maybe that's 60 years off and there's some other technology that will take foot, but you have to argue why Bitcoin isn't that. And I, I do think at this point, with it being a trillion dollar market cap and being as anti-fragile as it is, that, that is an increasingly difficult argument to make. Yeah. Don't forget that it's not always the best technology that wins. It's the technology that has the network effects. The Lindy is generally the one that wins, especially as Jeff Booth says, once it breaks that $100 billion barrier with the network effects at play, it's historically very unlikely for that to be the loser. And that doesn't mean that all of these other projects that are going on in crypto are useless. Some of them may prove to be incredibly useful in whatever avenue they're they're directing their, their energy at. But I think Dan and I would agree that at this point, with our understanding, Bitcoin is going to be the money or the gold, however you want to enumerate what that value, that energy transfer is. Bitcoin is going to be that. Everyone in this market fundamentally goes back to Bitcoin. Bitcoin moves this market. When Bitcoin goes down, generally the market moves down. When Bitcoin's crushing it, generally the market moves up. Overall, Bitcoin is, it is the crypto. 
The rest of it is just riding its coattails. Let's talk a little bit about scarcity because ultimately we've explained some of this, but the reason Bitcoin is a winner-take-all hungry kraken that's probably prone to eating tons of value in the economy is it's just the hardest scarcity asset that exists. The reason it provides a solution to a lot of the fiat issues is because it is freaking scarce. Like scarcity is the most important characteristic of money. Yeah, scarcity is is absolutely paramount. When you want to think about and 21 million in a lot of people's minds doesn't sound scarce. It's a lot. 21 million. But when you think about that in terms of how many millionaires there are in the world, the last time I looked, there's around 50 million millionaires. If each millionaire was incentivized enough to want to have at least one Bitcoin, there is not enough supply for them to own one. The price would have to go exponential in order for them to claw that much out of other people's hands. It's just wild. But I mean, even if the price was bid to infinity, it's simply not possible for each one to own one Bitcoin. That is fundamentally mind-blowing when you think about it. Like People with one Bitcoin right now might be sitting on more wealth than they can imagine at the moment. Yeah. When you couple the ability to self-custody, the portability of Bitcoin, the immutability of its of its blockchain and ledger, and then you add... So it's already doing so many things well. And then you add on the highest degree of scarcity our species has ever seen. I mean, the stock to flow... So essentially, stock to flow is the amount of existing supply is the numerator. And then in the denominator is the amount introduced per year. So another way to put that is existing divided by the inflation rate. The lowest stock to, or excuse me, the highest stock to flow is currently gold, right? It's at what, 50 to 60? Yeah, it's in that range. And Bitcoin is right there with it. And the next halving, I shall look it up, what the stock to flow will be after 2024. It's going to be it's going to be crazy. Yeah, it's going to have the highest stock to flow in history, meaning it's going to have the low, the, to, if that was confusing the way I put that, it's going to have the lowest inflation rate of any good in human history. And the supply is totally in, inelastic because it's programmable, right? So when we say inelastic, like think about the gold market, right, Josh? So even though gold is hard to extract from the earth, when it becomes more valuable, when the market spikes and the value increases, people can mine more gold. As the demand for Bitcoin goes up, you cannot create more Bitcoin. So not only are we going to have the lowest supply inflation in history, but we're also going to have the first good in human history with completely inelastic supply. So when you couple all of the native internet qualities that it has, self-custody, portability, Etc. With just unbelievable newfound scarcity, it's hard to comprehend a future where the demand doesn't increase. And as the demand increases, the supply is completely fixed and predictable. It's, it's going to go up in price. I mean, it's a pretty simple math problem in my mind. And you know, even if the demand doesn't increase, the price is forced up simply by the nature of the stock to flow increasing along with, along the way. In 2024, there's only going to be, I think it's six, what is it? 6.5 Bitcoins right now over 10 minutes. It's going to be 3.2, yeah. 
So and then it's stock to flow is going to go up to what? So it's so it's tied for the highest stock to flow in human history at around fifty, and then it's going to go up to around a hundred. Is that right? In twenty twenty four. I'm trying. I've been looking for the last minute or so, trying to find a good chart that enumerates that. I think I it's yeah. So it ha- the supply halves. So the it must go to around a hundred then. Yeah. So it'll be twice as scarce as gold on the planet at that point. What's crazy to think about is to get back to talking shit about fiat. What we're looking at in the 21st century, in the year 2021, here is we're looking at the softest money in human history. The the fiat system right now with zero peg and central banking is the softest money we've ever had as a, as a as a holistic system. And in the same day and time we have the hardest money we've ever had. They're both positioned side by side. If you're wondering why people are obsessed with Bitcoin, it's because those two things are sitting side by side. And I, I thought I I just looked up this quote by Saifedean Amus from the Bitcoin Standard which I love. He says History shows us it is not possible to insulate yourself from the consequences of others holding a money that is harder than yours. I think Bitcoin will Mm -hmm. prove this quote incredibly poignant over time. It's a harder money. It's going to feed. Cracking going to feed. You know, here I'm staring at the, the original stock to flow chart that Plan B made. And what's wild about this is this is the this is the more pessimistic stock to flow model. And this one is the one that predicts 100,000 by 2000, you know, around 2021 and late 2021 and then into 2024 where the next halving happens. According to this model, which again is pessimistic compared to his newer one, here's where we're going to hook the fish. We're looking at by around the year 2025, August, this thing is calling 1.2 million per Bitcoin mind-blowing kind of movements that i mean we you can see looking back through this log chart that it's got just massive price appreciation followed by you know a bear market crypto winter and then this price having just gives it gasoline man on the fire this stock to flow at least at this point in may 2021 is, is sort of eerie accurate it stayed completely within its standard deviations. It's tracked perfectly both on historicals and as it's progressed into the future since its origination. And yeah, it's. I guess it makes sense. I think I said this in a previous discussion. Like, If this model does prove to be more accurate, because obviously models have limits, but if it, if it continues to march out, I, it, it makes sense because it's putting in data that's known in the future. Like We know the supply. And so it makes sense that it's easier to predict as demand even stays constant. We know the supply in the future. It's easier to predict where it may march to. What's really wild about this too, as I look at it, in 2008, 17, and 18, and so the last halving was in 2016, and then that moved into that bull market in 17 and then ending in 18, the stock to flow at that time was calling 5,600 and we ran up to 19,000. So this thing calling a hundred thousand at the end of this year, there's a real possibility that it could shoot a multiple of that going way above the model. Like it's done at every previous yeah. bull market in, uh, well, in 2013, it called the, the stock to flow model would have called it at 74 and it deviated up to 800. Wow. Yeah. So, 
I mean, I think these impulses over time, because of market saturation and all of that, they will naturally quell. But I don't think we're there yet. I think we're going to see some some real jaw droppers happening in the la- in the later part of this year. People are going to really be scratching their heads. The crazy thing is, another another paradox is that the internet and digital age may further highlight that paradox I mentioned earlier. Softest money versus hardest money. Softest money our species has ever seen being fiat against hardest money our species has ever seen being Bitcoin. Like, Have you ever thought about the fact, Josh, that like CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, would actually make fiat even softer <laughs> than it currently is? Like, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like, if they, if they have a native internet fiat, right? So right now, fiat dollars and cash, it's analog money that the internet is uploaded to the internet, right? And that's why it's a fairly cumbersome medium of exchange compared to, say, cryptocurrency. But if they do essentially upload fiat to the internet and use central bank digital currencies, now you give them all kinds of levers that they don't even have currently. Like they can tell you when, where, how, at what time, you know, like they can dictate how you use the money. It's going to make the, and then it makes universal basic income easier. It makes, it makes every tool of manipulation easier. It's going to make the money even softer. So there's this like crazy paradox. The internet enables the hardest money, the scarcest money our species has ever seen. But it act, it also adds fuel to the fire of the flimsiness and the softness of money on the other end. You know what I'm saying? I do. Here's a couple of things that I see. Here's my fortune, my uh, crystal ball. When these CBDCs do happen, and they're going to, they're going to be able to give money an expiration date. So they're going to give you a time period in which you have to spend it. <laughs> yeah. They're going to be able to control where you spend it. They're going to be able to censor transactions that aren't favored. They're going to make. Sh- they're going to be able to spy on every transaction. There will be no more making deals with contractors for. Hey man, you know I'll pay you cash from, for to do it for two thousand instead of twenty five hundred. Not not it again, man. That's never going to happen again unless you're dealing with some cryptocurrency that you can keep off the books. But that those things are going to happen, <clears throat> and those are only some of the first things off the top of my head. And why do we think it is that it's taking so long for them to develop this thing? I personally think because it's pretty easy to throw together a cryptocurrency. I mean, Lucky Palmer did it in two hours with Dogecoin and look how great that thing's working. Lucky Palmer. That would be the name of the guy that created Dogecoin. That's his Twitter (laughs) handle. I don't know. Wait, no, it was something. I'm going to have to look that up. I think I might be totally wrong. Let's go with Lucky Palmer. (laughs) I like Lucky Palmer. But uh, I think that there's two things going on here with the development of the CBDCs. They want to enable themselves to have absolute full control, and it's going to take a while for them to develop that in every way. Also, it's a you know it's a government project, so it's like building a road. It's going to take five times longer than it should because it's going to be completely inefficient. And good luck finding good developers for your CBDC because they're all working for Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're all working where they and can none of those guys get some for themselves. Yeah, and you. I mean, you can you imagine going to the the core devs and being like, "Hey, uh, we kind of want to scoop you up because we have this great project. We want to make a dollar digital currency." They're going to be like, "Fuck you, man!" Like, this is exactly what we're working against. <laughs> yeah, dude, you're right. Capital controls are going to go through the roof. Like the limits that currently exist on how this 
money can be used are going to increase exponentially. It makes me think too about switching gears a little bit. It makes me think about the fact that if you live in the first world, like if you're a citizen of the United States or some wealthy European country, you, you don't understand the limits of the current monetary system. And I mentioned Alex Gladstein again. He's talking about talking to some people in Ethiopia that they have no access to US dollars. They have no access to euros or it's very hard to get access. They have no exposure to blue chip stocks. They can't, you know, it's it, the limits on the monies they can use. Like the monies they're using are inflating 30% a year. They're total crap. There's massive limits. And when they, when these people get cell phones in their hands, which many of them already have, I think he said 30% of, of uh, Ethiopians have a smartphone and they realize, wait a second, I can start using a native internet money that's totally borderless and decentralized, can't be manipulated by leaders. It solves all their problems immediately. You think they're not going to be using this thing? It's just it, when you start thinking about the third world, it, it really makes you realize how privileged you are and how limiting our current system is on so many disenfranchised people around this globe. So many people, you know, it, like ourselves that are privileged enough to live in a first world country where we have all these services and all these opportunities, we don't realize when we talk about the 1% that we are very much in the top 1%. I mean, at least the top 5% of the world, as far as those things are concerned, we we live with such a silver spoon up our ass that we, we really can't appreciate how much this is going to change things for people in these places. Or where was the last place? Was it El, I think it was El Salvador where uh, Jack Mahler's was helping people there get access to the lightning network and be able to transfer money from the U S to El Salvador. And what he described was these people. So they have relatives that live in the U S work here and they send money to their relatives in El Salvador who are, you know, making like $5 a week or something like that. Just very, very impoverished place. And when they send money back, they have to go to the Western Union to receive it. And there are organized gangs that hang out in front of the Western Union. So the first group of gang that you have to get through is the Western Union themselves who take like a 15 to 20% dip out of whatever they receive from their relatives. They walk out of the door and there's a gang of thugs there that is going to beat the crap out of them if they don't give them another 20%. By the time these poor bastards get home, they're lucky to have 50 to 60% of whatever their relatives sent them. So Mahler's is down there with Strike, and he's given these people access to an app that allows their relative to send them currency in whatever denomination they want, euros, dollars, Bitcoin. They can receive it instantly with almost no transaction fee. They don't even have to get out of their house. They just receive it right on their smartphone. And they're going to put the gang of thugs out of business and the guys that hang out in front of the Western Union. Yeah. Giving people, oh man, that's such a crazy process to think about. I mean, Bitcoin is freedom and and the opportunity for wealth generation for a lot of people who have their hands tied. This makes me, I just pulled up this tweet I saw yesterday from Ray Youssef. This is what he says. He says, Bitcoin is the most serious business ever in human history. Humanity needs freedom from financial apartheid now more than ever. We are about to break through thanks to the work of millions of humans and 12 years of toil. Anyone who makes a mockery of it is an enemy of humanity. Strong statement, but applicable, I think. Like when I hear 
people totally dismissing or making light of Bitcoin. I'm like, if you're an Ethiopian, if you're a Nigerian, if you live in El Salvador, if you have lived through significant inflation and massive limitations on what money you can use, and it encumbers your ability to grow businesses and provide for your family, Bitcoin is no joke. No, it's no joke even here. And people that take you know take it lightly or laugh at it genuinely do not understand what it is they're talking about or dealing with here. This is this is such a magnificent opportunity for everyone in the world who would simply take the time to to educate themselves and learn about it. I got a question, Josh, for you. Uh, I think you're better fit to answer this. When you were giving your monologue earlier on, I, I wrote this note down. Um, and you hinted at the options that you know a sovereign nation state or a central bank has to fix the fiat problem. But if you were Jerome Powell, if you were the Fed chairman right now, and understanding like his mandate, well, I guess with his mandate to create jobs and put band-aids on things, or just the future in mind, I guess you could answer them both separately, however you want. Like what would you what would you do? This is an interesting thought experiment. I have thought about that before because you're he's walled in, man. He's I mean, it's not like he's been running this thing for 50 years and it's his fault. It's not his fault. It's a I don't really I'm going to have to think about how I say this. I don't necessarily blame the bureaucrats themselves or the politicians themselves because like we've talked about before, all these people are just they're kind of animals operating inside of this the system and the system kind of dictates the direction that it's going and they just have to defend themselves and do what they can do to not be the one who collapsed the whole thing on their watch. So I think what a lot of these guys are doing, most of them are probably smart enough to understand what's going on here. And they just want to not be the guy holding the bag when it happens. So they're, they've got to play two sides of this thing. They've got to, you know, whisper sweet nothings into the market's ear to keep it keep it pumping and they've also got to try at least on on their face to be hawkish and um act like they're going to raise rates like everybody knows at least i i think i know i think dan you think you might think the same thing there's no fucking they way they, they, they raise cannot rates. raise they're, they're making rates. noise yeah so what they're going to do, they're going to take that stance. They're going to make a lot of noise about it. A lot of market participants are going to think they're going to, and they might even move things up a few basis points. And then when they do, the market's going to have a, a conniption fit and shit the bed like 20 to 30%. Then they're going to go back to the money printer and you know they're going to start, they're going to start stroking our ear again and saying, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. We'll keep doing this. So I guess what I'm saying is if... If I wanted to be a good guy as Jerome Powell and do what I thought was actually the right thing for the long term, I would probably try. Man, it's so hard to, I mean, it's so hard to come at this because if you said something as the Fed chair, like, hey, we're going to start, you know, using Bitcoin as a treasury reserve asset, you just deep sixed your entire charade. (laughs) Like, you you just deep sixed it. So, how do you? The real question, I think, when you drill it down to it is how do you transition from a system that you know is going to fail subtly into a system you think might be able to survive in the long term? I don't know. 
I, th- I think that's what they're going to be grappling with. I think what I would do, I would start acquiring assets like Bitcoin very slyly. I would not make any market intentions about it. I wouldn't tell anybody you want to do it as secretly as you can because it's a full out um, announcement that what we're doing here is going to fail. And uh, I've fully recognized that. If I was going to be a standard bureaucrat and a standard politician, I would do exactly what they're doing, which is kick the can down the road, try to make sure that I adjust for any bumps in the road by throwing some money at it and hoping to God, praying every night that I can get the fuck out of this position before it happens. I don't know. What do you think? I've thought about this a lot too. I think if I'm Jerome Powell and I'm running the Fed, I think you have to start tightening things up at least a little bit. You at least have to indicate through small steps that you're going to slow down the money printer and you're going to do something about tackling the problem of increasing interest rates. I mean if you're if you don't know much about the history of, you know, econ and interest rates, they've been on a steady decline since they've been on a steady yeah, since for about 30 so. years and now we're at zero essentially. I mean you have negative yielding bonds in Europe. We're probably going to be there soon. Like there's nowhere to go with interest rates. Like this is one of the, once again, back to basics, this is one of the tools that the government uses to contract and expand the economy. And there's there's nowhere to go on the expansion end of that, uh, of that chart. And we're, so we're at zero. I think you have to start insinuating that you're going to take rates up. But the problem is, you mentioned this, like once rates get lower, Josh, like incremental moves have huge impacts on the economy. This is one of the craziest things over the last, since the recession to watch, like small moves in basis points have massive reactions. That That's not necessarily the case, case when rates are higher. Like the market is incredibly sensitive when these rates are low, but I still think you got to mm-hmm. cause a little bit of short-term pain you got to start tightening things up slightly. You have to lay off the quantitative easing a little bit. Honestly, that's the best defense I think right now against Bitcoin. Like if you're if you're the Federal Reserve yep. and you're really worried about Bitcoin, which they are. Like they're that's not it's not an if. Like they're very very worried about Bitcoin. They Jerome Powell, he's the one that taught a class on Bitcoin, right? At MIT. No, that was uh, that was the guy who's the head of oh, the SEC sorry, now. Oh, sorry, sorry, I Geisler? mixed that up. I think it was yeah. Geisler. Okay, that's all. Yeah, good. you're right. But so it's Geisler. That's the. Uh... I, I Gary. It's Gary Geisler. I think I, I I'll look it up. But My, yeah, he's the either CFTC or SEC chairman. My, my now. point here is like Jerome Powell's a really smart human being with a ton of understanding of all financial systems. So he gets Bitcoin. He's aware of it, and. That they're they're worried about it. So if you're worried about Bitcoin, the best thing you can do is tighten up the money printer a little bit, because the value of Bitcoin is flashing bright orange as that printer runs hot, and they've got to slow that thing down slightly. Which yeah, is going to contradict their mandate for job creation a little bit, but it's an absolute necessity if you're worried about Bitcoin taking over the world. If I was going to try to hold the current system together, I think the only way to actually do it is to do exactly what Volcker did in the late 70s and early 80s and let interest rates rise massively. Organically. 
which what you're saying, which would, yeah, which would massively just crush the markets. We would see no doubt a depression. There would be a great depression and um, you'd be able to hold the system together, I think, because it would be able to heal itself through the proper channels, which is letting the market do its thing. But I mean, we're talking wiping everybody out, at least a vast majority of people with the positioning they have, because their positioning is under the understanding of the Fed doing what it's been doing and what it's been saying. If there was a sudden massive spike in interest rates, which would be extremely healthy for the dollar, it would solidify the dollar in the world for a long time, I think. The problem is, is that you would probably crash the global economy and it would be really bad because we've been we've been aggregating this problem for like 80 years and we'd be paying for it all at once. The other component is it makes the debt unsustainable. Like it's not it's not as though they're only exercising these monetary and fiscal policies to to help everybody. They're doing it cuz they have to. The the debt in this country is so out of control, is so lopsided over GDP that if rates go up it gets impossible. I mean, it's already mathematically impossible to pay back, but it becomes overtly impossible to pay back as rates go up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's not just us either. It's Europe is the same way. China's massively indebted as well. I can't even think of a country that isn't massively in debt. I think they're pretty much all, because we're a global economy now, in order for them to be competitive, each country to be competitive with, with another one, they kind of have to stay on uh, paired footing with each other because if, if suddenly our dollar rises in value it makes our exports less less eager the world would be less eager to buy our stuff because it would be such it would be so much more expensive for them so then our exports which we don't have much of anyway would just diminish and it would just throw everything out of balance really is what it would would come down to there are so the problem though i think is that there are people at the fed who are very smart and they, they've earned that, but at the same time, they're not smarter than the market. The market is the ultimate bellwether yeah, for what's going to happen. Is truth. And no PhD, none of these guys understand enough about the moving parts of the economy to make decisions that can last in perpetuity. They're, they're going to make mistakes. And some of those mistakes are going to, are going to ripple through the economy in massive, massive second and third or effects that are not going to be seen ahead of time and are going to be really bad. And the only way for those third and fourth order effects to be seen is to let the market see them because every actor in the economy in their own purview and their transaction to the person they're buying from and the person they're selling to reacts appropriately in their own little pool. There's just no way. It's like, I think it would be akin to like trying to predict the, le- the weather 50 years from now mm. because you'd have to be able mm-hmm. to model every molecule and every temperature change in every molecule in the entire earth and model that out for 50 years. Like no way the, the complexity in that kind of a model, I think we both know that's like, kind of like how they, they model a hurricane's path. Why do you think it is when it's 20 days out, the path is the size of a continent because there's no way to accurately predict all of those molecules and all of those influences and all of the things that can possibly happen to change the path of a hurricane. But as that hurricane gets closer, you can finally and finally tune the model in order for it to be accurate. So being able to predict 
an economy on a massive scale like we're looking at is just impossible for a single yeah, person. It, what, you, what you introduced there is the is just the fact that the current economy and monetary system are so ridiculously complicated. It's insane how long it takes to understand how all these things work. And even after you've read everything in the world, like you said, they, they still don't fully add up. And I think a good... I've, I've thought about Occam's razor before as it pertains to like Bitcoin. So basically, Occam's razor is the idea that the simplest solution... The, the simplest solution is usually the right one or the simplest idea is the one that will usually play out. Like simplicity generally proliferates and wins. If there's two options, one is simpler than another, pick the simpler option. The current system, the fiat system is so freaking complicated as you just enumerated. And the Bitcoin system, a hard money system is so insanely simple like algorithmically run, algorithmically run free market dynamics that just do as they will. And this isn't just a reality I'm highlighting between the two. It's it's also, I think, a reason Bitcoin has a fairly high likelihood of winning. Like it, it could be Occam's razor. It could be the simple solution that's going to cut pretty deep into the system. And think about, yeah. think about Occam's razor, Josh, is that thing can hurt. It can cut deep and it can cut hard, even though it often serves as truth. You know, I just threw this idea together thinking about what you just said. I think that Elon Musk right now in the world, in the in the crypto community's eyes, because he's just garnered so much attention, is the equivalent of a Jerome Powell in this market. Huh. Because what he says moves everything, right? So now Knowing what Elon Musk just did, the only thing he could have, the only worst thing he could have done is said, I'm selling all my Bitcoin and, you know, it's a terrible idea, which he didn't do. But what he just did to Bitcoin is equivalent to Jerome Powell getting on and saying, Hey, I just, you know, there's basically given some real bad news to the, to the world economy about the situation with the dollar, saying, you know, I don't necessarily believe in this thing. It might not work and it might not even be a great idea. Imagine, so now Bitcoin being the honey badger that it is, took it on the chin, ate some shit. I mean, real shit, but it survived and it's been through worse and it'll it'll keep surviving. Do you think that this stack of dominoes, which you talked about earlier, would be able to survive the impact of Jerome Powell saying something equivalent? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're at right. So the question is, if Jerome Powell talks some shit about Bitcoin, could it no, no, no. I'm saying if he if he did something similar in the world of the oh, dollar oh, oh, oh. and said basically I, I gotcha. said, uh, you know what, I I don't necessarily believe this thing. In you know, imagine the consequences to the Oh, the that's dollar. a great point. If Jerome yeah. Powell. Said so you've that. got what you've put what you've put side by side there, I'm tracking, is the fragility of the fiat system against the anti fragility of the Bitcoin system. Yeah. If if the Fed chairman came yeah. out and said you know what, folks? Uh, I'm not into fiat because the petrodollar system is a huge strain uh, on the climate. You know, basically, if he did the equivalent of what Elon did, and you know what, we're going to start moving towards uh, we're going to start moving towards Bitcoin because it's far more energy efficient and it'll usher in renewables, which is 100 percent true. If he said that, 
Holy fuck. Yeah. Look out. We're headed towards a Bitcoin standard within the decade and some crazy, crazy downhill snowball effects are going to occur. Great point, Josh. Totally. It agree. would be, it would be, yeah, you, I think that you put that together better than I did, but it would be a cataclysmic shock to the market that would end it yeah. very soon. And in, in, in terms of Bitcoin, Bitcoin is just blip. exactly like you said, anti-fragile, takes a 15% shot to the chin and gives some people a great buying opportunity. Yeah, and uh, the honey badger, which is Bitcoin, when she gets beaten down, which she obviously, if you've been around Bitcoin for a while, you've seen some FUD, you've seen some dips. Josh, you talked in a previous episode about the Chinese FUD during the 2017 bull market. It cut back 48%. Yeah. Is that accurate? It might have been 38. I think I was okay. a, that was a misnomer, but 38%, which is much worse than the Elon uh, shot to the bow. Yeah, but when this when it gets beaten down and then it rises up again from the depths, let's say the Elon tweet comes out, we go from 57 down to 50 or upper 40s, it hangs out there for a little while, and then we end up going up over 100. That's when people's eyes go from open to wide open, and it and it adds to the network effect because when you see the anti-fragility play out you just your mouth is open it's crazy yeah it's a simple network built to do only one thing which is create transactions that are immutable uncensorable and final and in in the real when you really think about there's nothing that's going to stop it even if the price goes to a dollar which i highly highly doubt it's still going to do its thing. It's still going to keep working. It's going to always work. No one's going to stop it. Jerome Powell couldn't do a single thing to stop what's going on here. On the other hand, with the dollar, it's it's just a, I mean, they're both imaginary systems, but one of these imaginary systems can't be stopped. Yeah. Another juxtaposition we could, we could uh, highlight is we've got one of the most fragile monies our species has ever seen parroted against one of the most anti-fragile monies our species has ever seen. So this is going back to the previous question, but I kind of want to lay out my answer if I'm Jerome Powell. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. You got to start also. So I said, you know, I would I would tighten things up if I was the Fed chairman. Show some strength. Try to increase rates. Stop some of the quantitative easing. But I think your your point that you made a few minutes ago is also accurate. You also got to start stacking some stuff on the U.S. balance sheet that's got some meaning behind it. You got to start stacking some Bitcoin. You probably want to start hoarding even more gold. But the trouble is, no matter what you do, you can't you can't stop the printer altogether because inflation is the only friend you have when you're in way more debt that you can pay off. The deficit mandates that fiat will debase. They have to keep printing to afford or even pretend like they can afford the debt. But if you stacked meaningfully into dollar weakness, it might actually theoretically be possible to pay off that debt at some point with devalued dollars yeah. from from sold Bitcoin in yeah. the future. It was pretty easy to pay off debt in Weimar, Germany. That's for sure. Yeah, it was very <laughs> easy. <laughs> yeah, when they uh, all you had to do was get your wheelbarrow out, fill that thing up with uh, Deutschmarks, 
and roll it down to the bank to pay off your debt. It was it was simple. Yeah, your your old mortgage that's going your on old mortgage was less expensive than an apple at the grocery store by the time that hyperinflation was over. Yeah, it's happened time and time again, and um, it's it's not impossible for it to happen here. Um, I don't suspect we're going to be r- r- rolling wheelbarrows full of cash around. We might be. Uh, <laughs> I wonder what the anecdote's going to be for when it's wheelbarrows full of CBDCs. Like, what <laughs> what do you think the people in the future are going to call that? <laughs> they had a digital wallet so full of digital money that the thing exploded. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It stopped working. It just crashed. So. We just talked some serious shit about fiat for God knows how long. And we're both clearly expressed. We think it's a very fragile, broken system that um, could be on the brink of uh, alteration or collapse. Um, the, the thing, though, that we got to qualify is I don't think... and interject if you disagree, but I don't think either of us are saying don't hold any traditional conventional investments in your portfolio. Like you should be a hundred percent exposed to Bitcoin. That's not what we're saying. You agree, right, Josh? I do agree. I think we got it. We got to throw some, obviously this isn't, we're not providing legitimate investment advice. We're just talking about our portfolios, but like the way I size this thing up, um, and at some point in a future episode, I'll give more of my history with with finance. Like I've been, Josh can attest, I've been a super traditional, more conventional investor. I would say I've been more on the aggressive side of that scale because for many years now, I've seen massive problems with fixed income and I've held none of it, partly because I'm young, but partly because I think it's dysfunctional because of a lot of the reasons we've highlighted with the, the, the macro econ inflation issues. But you still have to recognize at the end of the day, like as we sit today, Bitcoin is a trillion dollar asset against a sea of trillions, right? I mean, the global GDP is like 85 trillion. The you know fixed income markets are like 300 trillion. The equity markets are maybe shy of, but close to 100 trillion. I mean, this thing is a tiny, it's still, I mean, a trillion dollars is a huge asset, pond. but it's a minnow in the pond. And so- for me personally, it's imperative to play both sides. So you, you've said a couple of times, like there's two systems that are next to each other. You've got this new native internet digital scarcity, which is Bitcoin, which has huge asymmetrical potential, but then that's next to the legacy system that's way, way, way larger. And so the way I have viewed Bitcoin personally, and the reason I got interest, really interested in it as a legitimate part of my investment portfolio was viewing it as a hedge against the current system. So one way to put this would be the the more likely you think that the fiat system is to fail or flip over, the bigger that hedge should be. But you st- you still need to hold you still need to hold equity, right? You're going to have to have US dollars. Obviously there's many other good ideas, real estate, precious metals, commodities, the list could go on. We're not we're not saying I'm not suggesting to anybody that I care for like 100% of your allocation should be in Bitcoin. And I think the assets you need to be in, though, as you start sizing up the dysfunction in the current system, you need to be in assets, at least for the next decade, that are going to benefit from inflation. So for me personally, that's diversified equity. Basically, my portfolio is diversified equity that I dollar cost average into and Bitcoin that I dollar cost average into. What are your thoughts, Josh? 
I agree with everything you said. And if somebody that I cared about that I thought wanted to hear what I think the best thing for them to do with their money is, I actually broke it down into percentages um, on each of these asset classes. So the first, just because this is a Bitcoin podcast, I'm going to talk about that first. What I would tell somebody that doesn't know a whole lot about the space what to do, I would recommend 10% of your portfolio into Bitcoin, 5% in gold, 25% into a commodities index, and that is just generally commodities. And we're talking about over the period of the next 10 years here. And 60% index investing into equities. That's my all-weather portfolio for the next 10 years. And I suspect that by the end of this 10-year period, that 10% allocation in Bitcoin is probably going to be the vast majority of your holdings if you didn't rebalance. Yeah. that's uh, And I think right now at this time, exposure to Bitcoin is no longer optional. This is something that you must have some exposure to in your portfolio. Yeah. Um, and again, I know we both said this before. I don't think you should own more Bitcoin than at the level of understanding you have in it. If you think that you're scratching your head and you don't really understand this thing well, take a small allocation, 1% to 5%. Learn how, how to use it. Learn more about it. Um, if you are you know want to level into this thing, I don't think it's healthy to go more than maybe a third of your portfolio uh, right off the bat. And I would highly recommend, as we've said before, take maybe half of your position up front and then uh, dollar cost average the other half of it in over a period of a few months in the current market. Uh, and that could change based on uh, what kind of part of the cycle we're in here. <laughs> yeah. Did you, uh, you have any? I, uh, I was laughing because you're right. If, if you've been invested in Bitcoin for any substantive period of time, the delightful problem becomes your initial allocation uh, grows significantly. So you said, you know, that 10% could end up dominating. Yeah, it's kind of a tough decision to make when 10% becomes 40%. What do you do? It's hard to sell Bitcoin. When you start understanding this more, like it's, you know, I, I heard uh, somebody say the other day, like friends don't let friends sell Bitcoin. It's so difficult to sell this thing. And for me, like, look, I love, you know, you said for you, you're thinking if you were, you know, 10%, you said 10% Bitcoin, 5% gold. Did you say 15%? What was the commodities percentage? Twenty. I said 25%, 25% commodities. commodities. So the, the, the thing for me, and I, I actually do have a, a small gold position. I have had a gold position for years. But the thing that's hard for me, just personally about gold and commodities, is like when I'm about to execute a trade to acquire them, I'm like, but why not Bitcoin? The stocks Dude. make total sense. Like past history, decades on decades, obviously companies have cash flows. They spit off productivity, even if there is a bubble and they're way overinflated. And then you think about the inflationary environment and, and the stock bubble itself, probably pushing valuations up and that showing no signs of stopping. Stocks is very clear to me. That's going to be part of my IRAs and 401ks and the things my wife and I have forever. When I, when I deviate from stocks and I look for something else to acquire, for me at this point, at this day and time, it's hard for that other answer not to be Bitcoin. I am going to go ahead and let everyone in on some information that you might chuckle about. I sold and I had a substantial amount of gold at, at one point as percentage of my portfolio. I've been tapering it down into Bitcoin for 
I don't know, two or three years now. And I've in uh, September last year, I sold off my last ETF that's exposing me to gold and it's it's now Bitcoin. Yeah. I don't own any gold. All this being said, Josh and I obviously lost all of our Bitcoin in a boating accident. So we we don't actually own any. Yeah, it was a it was a boat surfing accident. Yeah. Actually, I forgot my hardware wallet was. Yeah, in and I br- I brought mine too. We Ugh. were comparing hardware wallets. We were out on the open seas, and <laughs> and uh, next thing you knew, they slipped off. So the you know it sucks yeah, that we don't own any of this thing. But uh, we're gonna get out there and look for them, though. I think we can recover them. Maybe. Yeah, but I mean, we may be turning off some crazy maximalists with this discussion, but this is just rationality, dude. I mean, even with how convicted I am in Bitcoin right now, I think another word of advice I would give to a a prospector of this space is only, especially in the beginning when you don't understand this thing and you are doing your homework, don't put in any amount of money that if you'd lost it would totally screw up you or your family's future. It is asymmetrical and there's two sides of that symmetry. Right, one side. Like when we say it's asymmetrical, we're saying it's got unbelievably disproportionate upside, but it's also got one x downside, and we have to be candid yeah. about that. And so, just be responsible, yeah. friends, and don't forget: in Bitcoin, nobody is going to save you. Mm-mm. There's no one to call. There's no central bank to help you out to print some more Bitcoin. You know, there's there's no guy that's going to reset your password. Uh, you lose this stuff. Or it goes to zero and you're fucked. Nobody's yeah. going to care. Although I think that it, I highly doubt it's gone anywhere near zero. Yeah. But it could. Crazier things have happened. Much more likely is you'll lose your money because you didn't understand how to operate it or use the system. So please take your time, watch some YouTube videos, let somebody walk you step by step through how to operate sending Bitcoin from one address to another. And make sure you hold on to your keys safely. We'll do some tech episodes. I think those are those are coming. We will. We'll get into some tech basics. But yeah, I say this with a heavy yep. heart, Josh. But if someone came up to me and said, do you still fiat, bro? I would say, I do still fiat. But I Bitcoin, baby. Hopefully you gathered some uh, intel about how fragile and vulnerable and uh, manipulated the current monetary system is. And how robust, honey badger-like, and anti-fragile the Kraken is. Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have time, leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, at blue underscore collar BTC. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Yeah.